Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We've got a great show planned. I'm excited about it. Zach Broom's going to be coming up in just a minute. And he's written a book on apologetics called Without God. And I was thinking about that. Who would want to go without God? Hmm. I was thinking of Jesus, and he alone assumed authority to forgive sin. And Jesus alone claimed that he gives eternal life. He claimed he is the truth. He has the authority to judge the world. And he is worthy to receive our worship. He said, I'm self-sufficient. There's never a beginning and never an ending. That's the one I'll follow. Let's take a break and then bring on Zach Broom. Faith Radio offers a free resource that will ground you in your faith each week. It's the prayer devotional email, and it's easy to receive. Simply sign up at MyFaithRadio.com under the subscriptions tab. Then you'll be sent a weekly message with words of inspiration and prayer. It's a wonderful way to connect with God and equip you for the week ahead. Once again, just visit MyFaithRadio.com, click on subscriptions, and sign up. You'll be blessed by the prayer devotional email. There's power when coming together, when hearts and minds are joined behind a common cause, a common passion, a common hope. There's a spirit that takes flight and moves you to action in ways you just couldn't move by yourself. That's why every baseball team still playing wants the home field advantage the crowd will give them. Why worshiping together moves you in ways solitude can't. And why listening to Faith Radio and gleaning from the insights and experiences of a community truly connects faith to life. Faith Radio. Welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be having a conversation with Zach Broom. He's written a book which all originated when he was having a a talk with his atheist boss. What a fascinating way to start. And so how can we, without God, have hope or make sense of such a broken world? So he's written a book called Without God, uh, Science, Belief, Morality, and the Meaning of Life. Zach, welcome to the show. Hi. How long, how long did you work on this project? Oh, about eight years, nice. I think. It was took a lot longer than I thought it would. Every every summer we'd go out to a cabin, a resort area with my wife's family, and I'd work on a little bit. And I thought, this is the last summer. It's going to be done. And this, <laughs> finally, this last one was it. So. Mm-hmm. so tell me about the origin of this when you had this conversation with your atheist boss. How'd that start and how yeah. did that go? Yeah, so while I was in seminary, uh, I got a job doing overnight security and I met uh, my boss and found out he was an agnostic borderline atheist. And it was interesting cause I didn't, I didn't think that he would be at first cause I was talking to him and he seemed to know more about Christianity than most of the Christians I knew. And so then when he told me he was an agnostic borderline atheist. I was like, Oh wow, really? So anyway, so he'd end up filling in some shifts and we'd work overnight together and you know, we would talk for hours on end about, you know, science, religion, basically a lot of the things that are in this book. And so that's kind of how it got started. That's how, you know, I got interested in the topics there. Um, The big question that fascinated me um, every time our conversations would come to this question, which is, 
It actually goes back to um, the great Russian novelist Dostoevsky, who said, if God is dead, is everything morally permissible? Like, if God doesn't exist, is there is there right and wrong? Um, so that was kind of the question we centered on a lot. And that's really the question that drove the book, you know, because if God doesn't exist, how do we how do we say what's right? How do we say what's wrong? How do we have any meaning in the moral sphere at all? Yeah. Now, what's your governor? What is dictating your behavior? What's what's restraining you if if it's there's no God? Right. And that's really the thing. You know, I'll talk to atheists and and and, and what's so interesting is, well, we live in a post-Christian culture. And we agree on a lot of the same things, right? We agree that murder is wrong. We believe that, you know, that the minority shouldn't be oppressed by the majority. We should, you know, there's human rights, all these sorts of things. But I'll say, hey, look, I agree with you that, you know, we should care about those in minority positions who don't have power. We should, we should take care of the poor, all these kind of things. The reason I believe that is because I believe humans are made in the image of God and therefore they have value and respect and dignity. But why do you believe that? And usually, unless they've, read up on the topic and they're familiar with the conversation, the response is almost just kind of this, well, duh, everybody just does. Well, it's not a just duh. Like, why do, Why are humans more valuable than rocks or trees? I mean, you can't look to nature to come up with that conclusion, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, you, if, if you have a scientific worldview, like, you have to believe on faith that humans are more valuable than squirrels. You know what I mean? Like, there's nothing in nature that tells you, like, the hierarchy of value. Right. So when you talk to people from an atheist background, and they're going to probably want to know, how do you make sense of a world that has so much incredible suffering and kids that get cancer and kids that get abducted? And I mean, just the, how, how do you put that together and make sense of it? Yeah, that's actually a really good question, because what you're referring to and what they're referring to when they bring that up is the problem of evil and suffering. Mm hmm. Um, you know, and it's a, it's an age old question, which is if God is good and God is all powerful, why is there evil and suffering? The problem of theodicy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's a good question. And if you look at the history on it, you know, for the past basically 150 years, atheist philosophers had said, Hey, this is a knockdown argument against theism, right? Against the God of Christianity, because surely if God is good and all powerful, he would stop it, but he hasn't. So therefore he either doesn't exist or he's not good. And the most plausible solution is God doesn't exist. Well, what's really interesting is there's been kind of a resurgence of Christian philosophers who have come along and really done a lot of really good work in these areas. And one philosopher specifically, he points out that it's actually a bigger problem for atheism than it is for Christianity, right? Because so, so as Christians, like we don't have an ultimate solution. We have a little bit of ideas. We have some inklings of why God would allow it. But the basic idea goes that because I can't come up with a reason why a good and all-powerful God would allow evil and suffering means that there can't be one is actually a really arrogant claim, right? Isn't mm-hmm. it possible that we don't actually just have the information to figure that out? So that's not like a very satisfying answer, but at the same time, uh, what I find most satisfying isn't the intellectual answer, but it's actually the, the existential answer, right? Like the emotional answer, which is, you know, you look at the New Testament and what does God do about evil and suffering? comes and he embraces it. He bears it. He dies on the cross himself so that he can wipe it out one day without wiping us out. Right. And so we don't have an ultimate solution, but we have, we don't have a perfect answer, but we do have a perfect person that demonstrates to us that God is not indifferent. He doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he cares about what we're going through. Mm -hmm. But for the atheists, what's so interesting, and you know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. Anybody who reads the book will figure that out pretty quickly. 
But C.S. Lewis really struggled with that question for a long time, too. And when he came to faith, one of the things that, that brought him there was realizing that as an atheist, if he had all these complaints about the God of the Bible, right? He said, God of the Bible has failed to do the morally right thing. This gets back to the moral question. But then Lewis realized, well, what measurement am I holding him up against? What standard am, am I comparing this God to to say he hasn't done the right thing? Because if it's my own standard, well, who cares, right? Mm -hmm. you know, those are a dime, of, dime a dozen. Right? Why should my be, be any more valid than anybody else's? Uh, and what he realized he was doing was he was actually holding the God of the Bible to his own standard, which is a very silly thing to do then. It's interesting. Uh, I often will say to people who are questioning God and his goodness and the reasons for doing what he does, as I always say, well, uh, a mind outside this world created this world. Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to know that mind? I can trust him without him having to explain to me. Uh, he's not accountable to me. I'm accountable to him. Right. Yeah. But a lot of times uh, atheists, uh, Zach, you'll probably agree to this. They, they like to go the science route. They like to say, well, I, I believe in science. And I usually want to ask right away, are all scientists infallible? Because usually when they say science, they never say that scientists can be fallible. Right, yeah. And, and that's actually really interesting because while I was researching to write this, um, you know, I read a lot of atheist philosophers and scientists and stuff like that. And a lot of them will readily admit, they'll say, you know what science is? It's placeholder truth. And most likely, even what you're reading, one of my favorite Massimo Pigliucci says, even what you're reading in my book right now will probably be outdated within <laughs> a few years. <laughs> you know, so it's like science is great. But when it comes to these big questions about life, you know, like the really big, important stuff, like it's so fragile. It's changing all the time. Like mm. even one of the things that they're really doubting right now, uh, it comes from the field of neuroscience, which is free will. Can we have free will? If there is no God in a naturalistic universe and every action is the result and cause of a prior action, well, no. Well, of course not. We can't have free will. And yet all of us believe that we make choices, that we aren't the products of, of fate. Zach, let me take a little break. Zach Broom is my guest. He's written a book called Without God, Science, Belief, Morality, and the Meaning of Life. We'll take 90 seconds and be right back. Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to be chatting with Zach Broom. He's uh, written a book on apologetics without God, science, belief, morality, and the meaning of life. I love books on apologetics. I think we're all much better off if we study apologetics and get better equipped to share our faith. So when you're having discussions with people and, and they're coming from an atheist standpoint, what else do you hear from them that makes you go, this is kind of a textbook response from atheists? I know people will want to go to evil and suffering. They'll want to go to, you know, prove to me that God exists. They'll, they'll, they'll do a lot of things like that. What else do you hear, Zach? Oh, there's, there's so much. And, and so most apologetic books, what they do, and this isn't always bad. I'm not saying this is, you should never do this. But what, what both sides of, of, you know, atheists and theists will do is they'll say, all right, look, Let's sit down, let's hash this out, let's talk through the issues. And basically what happens is both sides collect all the evidences they can and counter evidences to the other, other position. And then they sit down and it's like, let's see who wins. Like it's like this intellectual chess match, right? 
I don't think that's the best way to kind of go about this. You know, you can do some of that and it's valuable, you know, like answering, you know, the question of evil and suffering, dealing with, with origins and how, you, how you, do we trust Genesis and you know, all these kind of questions that atheists will bring up. And those are good things to do. But what I always try to bring it back around to is just say, hey, look, we're, it's not an issue of the evidences. You and I have access to the same exact evidences. You know, I don't think, I don't think you're a stupid person. I think you're very smart and usually they'll acknowledge the same vice versa. Right. Um, whether they believe that or not, I don't know. Hopefully they don't think I'm a moron, but, um, but anyways, you know, you, you have that conversation. It's like, the question then is, is why are we coming to such different conclusions? And the illustration I use is you ever been to those 3d movies? I, I can't cause I get too car sick. Okay, yeah, I actually have that problem now lately, so I don't go to them anymore. But for a while, you know, 10 years ago, the 3D movies were all the craze. And I didn't know this, but you, there's actually three different kinds of 3D glasses that, you, you know, technology for watching those movies. And if you don't have the right glasses, like, the whole thing's going to make you sick even faster. Like, you're going to watch, like, 10 <laughs> seconds and just yeah. be throwing up. Like, oh, yeah. It's, and so you have to have the right glasses on in order to see it clearly and perceive the movie. It's the same thing with the evidences. Our worldview that we hold to those beliefs, those foundational beliefs are actually the glasses that make us perceive the evidence as different from one another. So the question, what I'm trying to do in my book and what I try to do in these conversations is to say, what's the right pair of glasses we should be using to look at these evidences? So in my book, the primary pairs of glasses I'm looking at is Christianity and humanistic atheism, atheistic humanism. And what's so interesting is when it comes to atheistic humanism, Every single one of our basic intuitions that makes up like how we perceive the world, they actually undermine like free will, right? Like I just mentioned that a second ago, mm -hmm. free will, they, they are having to readily admit now that we don't have it. At least it doesn't look like we don't have it. And it's like, wait a minute, if we don't have free will, like the prison should be emptied. Like there's a lot of consequences to that. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. why are we holding people accountable? <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's some scary stuff, you know? And there's a lot of those. And what I call them is, is intuitions, Right. Love is one of them. Well, what, is, what does evolution say about love? It's a biochemical reaction in the brain that helps us raise our offspring and protect the survival of our genes. What is beauty? It's a neurological, neurological hardwired response to data that also you know, helps us pass our genes on, right? We, we see lush environments that are beautiful and because there's food there, and so that's why we find those things beautiful. Same thing with evil and suffering. As we talked about a second ago, what is it? Well, we might subjectively dislike it, but really it's it's... It's no more evil or good than anything else. Mm -hmm. We just don't care for it. Same thing with human rights. What's human rights? Well, there are no human rights. Humans aren't more valuable than rocks or trees, and human rights only exist if we say they do. Okay, well, what happens if 51% decide that they're going to take away the rights of the minority? Does that mean there aren't human rights? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's super problematic. And same thing with morality. And there's all these basic intuitions that they have to explain away and and say are basically evolutionary illusions put in place to get us to reproduce. And that, get, and that gets scary really, really fast when you start following those, those beliefs to their logical conclusions. And thankfully, we're not there yet because we live in a post-Christian culture. So you talk to a lot of atheists, they're going to share a lot of these same beliefs, you know, about human rights and stuff like that. But what I think history shows this is as a culture embraces a post-Christian mindset, that eventually gives way. Like you can't, you know, it's a generation or two at most where that gives way. And then those things are like, yeah, you know, those don't exist. And then power is all that's left over. Right. And that, you know, there's a whole lot of freaky stories in history of where that happens. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's dark. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit of your faith story, Zach. 
Yeah, so I grew up a pastor's kid in northern Minnesota. My dad was a pastor at the same church for over 33 years, which was pretty neat. That's very neat. Um, yeah, and, you know, even since I was probably, I would say, just a little kid, I remember really kind of struggling with my faith and having a lot of doubt. I remember riding with my dad down to Brainerd, you know, down where we'd go shopping and stuff. And I just kind of looked at him. I said, Dad, if God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin, why would he make them? Why wouldn't he stop that? You know, and that was that was pretty young, which is basically the problem of evil and suffering. Right. And, you know, so just from an early age, I really kind of struggled with doubt, um, you know, had questions. And thankfully, you know, my dad never discouraged those questions. Um, I think that's very um, an unwise route to go. That's a very dangerous route to take. As Christians, we believe that there are reasons for our faith, right? We don't have blind faith. And so we should embrace and wrestle with our doubts because for me, what I found was the process leads to your faith becoming more robust, stronger, and you become more confident in it. That process continued into my early 20s, especially where um, I was actually in Bible college at the time. And I kind of hit this point where I had to make a decision. I was like, okay, am I going to, is, it, is this faith I grew up in that I professed that I'm going to school to be a pastor for? Am I going to do this? Is this going to be my faith, my religion? Or, you know, because you can't, you can't just have it be your parents' faith, right? That doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to come to that. You have to wrestle through it yourself. And thankfully, that process um, did lead to a, a deeper confidence in the faith. So that, that's, that's kind of a, my background. There. Yeah, well, that's awesome. And I think it's great you had a pastor uh, dad who was able to sit and kind of talk you through a lot of this stuff. It's a great example of how important it is for kids to ask those why questions and for the parents to explore the answers, not just say, well, that's because it's what we believe and you should believe it too. Right. Yeah, that's so bad. I mean, there's a reason, and this isn't the only reason. There's, it's, there's, you know, there's many of them, but there's 75% of the teens are leaving the church at 18 and they're not looking back. Nah, and I don't really think tragic. that's, yeah. And, and I don't think that's just because of apologetics, but really like we have to give better answers than the Bible says so. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a bad answer. Like, I mean, if, if you answer the questions around it and get to that, like ultimately, yes, we do believe the Bible and that's our confidence and that gets back to the beliefs and stuff. But just saying the Bible says so, like, you know what I mean? That's not going to work in this culture. Yeah. People are just going to look at you like, that's just stupid. That's blind. Like, mm-hmm. Why do you do that? You know, I've been preaching through the book of Jude um, recently and Jude is calling those readers to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. You know, in Second Corinthians, Paul says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I love you that. Know, like, we don't hide from hard questions as no. Christians. And we have a long history of Christians wrestling with doubts. And another thing is, even with our kids, we should do that. But even with other people, we need to do this as well, right? Our atheist coworkers, you know, and it's not that I think that, you know, I'm going to answer every single evidential question they have, and then they're going to trust in Jesus. I don't think it works that way. But my, the reason that I answer their hard questions, it's, it's a way of showing love to them. There's nothing more offensive if somebody comes to us and says, hey, you know what? You believe in three gods. Um, you know, they just start misrepresenting Christianity and all this stuff. And it's just like, hey, hold on a second. I don't actually think that. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so if you don't take the time, if we're not taking the time as, as Christians, if the church isn't taking time to understand the way people think their objections with Christianity, the things that their doubts, the things they're struggling with. Like, that's just not showing love. It's not showing Christ-like love. And so by taking the time to understand their worldview, you know, not build a straw man argument, but to represent what they're saying in the strongest possible form, 
that I think builds bridges in order to share the gospel with people and show them that Christianity isn't just a blind faith that, you know, we do take things, we do take these things seriously and we want to have real conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Zach, what, what would atheists say about their conscience? Is it something that evolves and how does it evolve or why does it evolve? When it comes to the conscience, um, the conscience is one of the probably most debated things, I think, when it comes to our intuitions amongst atheists. And there's not a lot of good answers out there. Um, The most common one I ran into explanation for it was consciousness is basically an illusion, right? Like we think we're conscious. It feels like we're conscious. But in reality, right, and that gets back to the free will thing. How do you have consciousness without free will? Right. Like a conscious person is making choices. That's a part of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they, they, we chose a when we could have done B and we're immediately aware that we could have done that. Mm-hmm. And you get rid of that. Like the only the other conclusion you can come to is and some of them will say this is we're conscious in a sense, but we're more the observers, kind of like the person sitting in in our brain watching things unfold. <laughs> we're not actually in control of the wheel, which it's pretty freaky fast too when it comes to justifying all sorts of horrible actions. Yeah, no kidding. So, um, there, I know there's a lot of books out on apologetics. So give me just, uh, the, the elevator pitch, why I would be gravitating towards yours. Yeah. Good question. You know, most apologetic books, it's piling up the evidences and trying to just, it's overwhelming force, right? It's mm-hmm. like, my book is the, is the glasses question, right? Oh, yeah. it's, it's taking some of the evidences but really it's saying, how should we be viewing these evidences? Which worldview better explains reality as we know it? And the thing that just blew me away is Christianity has a really good explanation. It might be wrong, but it's a better, and I don't think it is, but it's a definitely a better explanation for explaining reality as we know it and experience it. It doesn't undermine every one of these intuitions, these fundamental beliefs about reality that we need to function and do life. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do in the book is show people, you know, I'm not trying to come and say, I can prove to you God exists and that it's Jesus, because I don't think you can do that, right? I don't think it's, I just don't think that how evidence works. But at the same time, I'm calling people to say, okay, intellectually, Christianity is very powerful. It's very powerful. Yes, I recognize that an unbeliever, for every powerful argument I give you, there is a way out. You know, you, you can find a way if you want to just, you know, to, to, to escape it, to escape the conclusion of the argument I'm giving you. But at the same time, the question is, which worldview better satisfies the longing of our hearts? Which one resonates with those intuitions that we have within us that tells us, you know, life is not a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, really, right? Because that's really what, what naturalism tells us. That's what atheism is telling us. There is no meaning in life. Well, try to live life by that belief. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a miserable way to live. Yeah. And so in Christ, and this is where I always try to get back to with atheists, you know, because you can have you can talk about evidences all day long, and it's a super fun conversation, as long as both sides are respectful. But where the where the conversation always has to get to is Christ. In Christ, this is how you find life's meaning. This is how you have hope. Hebrews says, "Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." Right, and hope is what we're trying to bring this back to. Our faith isn't just a faith in intellectual facts; it's in a person. It's in a hope. We believe that this in this person, life can have true meaning and understanding that the other worldviews can't even scratch. I agree. Zach Broom has been my guest. He's written a book called Without God, Science, Belief, Morality, and the Meaning of Life. Go to Amazon.com to check that out. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. (music) 
Wardle is my guest. He's a author, speaker. He's gotten a book called Out Some Kind of Crazy, an unforgettable story of profound brokenness and breathtaking grace. And I picked up the book and I started reading it after one chapter. I had to put it down and then go splash some cold water on my face, have a cup of coffee, and then go back because it was riveting. He writes beautifully. His style is uh, entertaining and funny, and it, it gets you and it holds you. And um, now I'm very excited to talk to him. Terry, welcome. It's such a joy to be with you today. You you got away with words, my friend. <laughs> well, the descriptions uh, I, are hysterical and riveting, and I want to sell the Wardle family story to Netflix. Well, uh, do your best, uh, Michael. <laughs> My goal simply was to sell a story about how God can really change a broken life. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just it it's fun. It's I shouldn't say it's fun. It's tragic, but the way you write about it, your style is fun. So, um, I I love your style. Well, thank you very much. I uh, I labored over this book because I wanted to be honest. I wanted to write it without anybody looking over my shoulder so it could be as genuine and authentic as I really lived it out. At the same time, there was a lot of humor in the midst of all the craziness. Well, you grew up in the Appalachian uh, coal fields of southwestern Pennsylvania, and I'm looking at Chapter 2 where it says, um, here's some rules for living. Rule number one was to disdain education because too much schooling could ruin a man. Rule number two is to stay away from church because religion could turn us into weaklings. And rule number three was to obey the law, but only when it was convenient to do so. Yeah, that's what it was like in my family. We lived in uh, we lived in the hills and hollows of southwestern Pennsylvania. My great grandfather had come over at the turn of the century and had a family of eight children. They all had children. I knew everyone in our area, and it was a a hard scrabble family. It truly was. Yeah, your grand your grandpap was a piece of work, wasn't he? He was. Uh, boy, you know my extended family remembers him as though he were Robin Hood. But the truth <laughs> of the matter is, he he stole from everyone, and I think he stole the most from his own family. And I know that was true of uh, his relationship with my father. My my grandfather had no use for religion. He was a criminal in multiple ways, and he had uh, a notorious representative. Um, uh, a notorious reputation for womanizing throughout our community. And back then, they just said he had a way with the women. But the truth was he was a, a very immoral man, uh, a very impetuous man, and a man who could blow off uh, the top of his head at any moment with uh, explosions of temper. And some of the times that meant people were going to be harmed. Mm-hmm. And when I was reading about some of the trauma you experienced as a kid, I mean, this was scary stuff. Oh, it was frightening. It absolutely was frightening. Um, you know, I was a very sensitive kid, to be honest with you, and I think a very tender-hearted kid. And I lived in a family with a lot of no-talk rules, with uh, violence and crime around us. And uh, one of the worst memories of my life involved my grandfather. He took me on a ride late at night as the sun was going down, and we went out into the woods on a two-track road. It, darkness fell. He pulled a revolver out of the glove box told me to get on the back floor and lay there and not move. And then he took off for almost an hour. He came back all perspiring. I was a mess mm -hmm. having heard every single screech of branches and noise outside, afraid that I was going to just lose my mind. And then he said, don't tell anyone. 
and he went back to the house. Later, wow. I did tell my parents. They kind of blew it off, but the truth of the matter is, uh, years later, my dad said, I knew exactly what was going on. Your grandfather was out in the woods hiding to go down over the hill and have um, an adulterous relationship with the neighbor's wife, and I was the ruse. Uh, that got him out of the house that night as though he was taking me for a small ride. It was one of several events that left me as a child really, really frightened. I had a, I had an anxiety disorder rather early in yeah, childhood. Yeah, I can understand, and, and no one would argue that. So your whole family sort of said, no religion, not interested. So how did you come to faith after experiencing so much hostility towards Christianity? Well, uh, it... it it was an interesting journey. Um, when I was a young teenager, my mother, who hadn't been involved in church, went to a revival service that was all week long. And it was interesting because it was kind of half revival service, half vaudevillian show. There was a, a guy that came in as the evangelist and the song leader would be singing and he would dress up like Jesus. And then he would sneak a look over the balcony or peek through a door or out a window and everyone would swoon. Then he'd come back dressed as himself and he'd preach the gospel. In the midst of that, my mom actually had a moment of giving her life to Christ. Now, it was a strange combination of legalism, Pentecostalism, and even, I used to say, numerology. But regardless, um, she brought God into our home, and soon we began to attend church occasionally. And there was a youth group there, which I started to attend, kind of liked it. And they hauled a whole bunch of us off to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to hear David Wilkerson and a bunch of drug addicts from New York tell stories of Jesus. And after a hellfire sermon, I went forward and cried my eyes out. And to be honest with you, Jesus met me there in a very loving and tender way, and he planted a homing device in my heart. Now, not being discipled for the next eight years, all, all the way up through college, I I had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I didn't know whether I was going to be a devil or a disciple, but Jesus was faithful, and he kept wooing me to himself until finally, one night, my senior year of college, after doing things I shouldn't have been doing, uh, he, really, he really laid his, his hand on my life, and that, that turned me toward Jesus. Now, I need to say, uh, not all the issues of my past were handled when I came to Christ, there were a lot of unrepaired emotional ruptures that would follow me for many years in ministry. But I did know Jesus, and he did have his hand on my life, and I, I said yes to the call to ministry. Yeah, and well, Terry, you had some fast-forwarding sort of activity to go from uh, a founding pastor of a, a fast, one of the fastest-growing churches in the U.S. to being a, a president of a seminary. Whoa! That's—and that was— by the time you were 40. Yes. Uh, as I said, God laid, God laid his hand on me. And if anyone ever believes in anointing, I think that's part of what happened. And I was able, I went and got an education, and I was able to make a contribution both to the seminary, the academy, and then to church life. And I was grateful. Um, it was neat to see crowds form and have opportunities to write books and to get out and speak. But I was carrying a lot of baggage with me. And by the time I reached 40 years old, to be honest with you, I kind of slipped into the Grand Canyon of my own emotional brokenness. And out of that, I had a long journey of meeting Jesus in some significant pain that, that came mostly from my distant past. Mm -hmm. So you had this downward spiral, and 
I think the listeners will be a little surprised to hear this landed you into a, a psychiatric hospital. That's right. Uh, not only would your listeners be surprised to hear that, at the time I was surprised to experience it, and all my colleagues had uh, advised me never tell anyone, but I couldn't do that. It was uh, it was too important of a journey. Yeah, I I began to experience extreme agoraphobia and depression at the time that I was being being invited to speak and had a great growing church and had a couple book contracts. All that past had caught up to me, and the anxiety and despair that I'd been killing through performance, or at least silencing through performance, began to shout. And I spent about a month in a psychiatric hospital getting treatment for depression and agoraphobia. And to be honest with you, while many people told me never to tell it would ruin my ministry, I did tell, and it began to not only radically change my life, but open up another ministry where I could sit with the broken and help them meet Jesus in, if you will, the ditch of their own life. Mm-hmm. And and it's I, I've teased with people and said, if I were a brilliant writer, I'd like to write a book on ditch theology, because my story is not one where God's met me on the mountain of my own tr- uh, transfiguration, but uh, in the ditch. And I struggle there, have struggled there, and all of a sudden I turn around and there's Jesus tenderly there wanting to meet me and heal me and put me back on the road. And that has happened many times. I laugh because one of the reviewers of the my new book said, the Christian life is about returning. This is a story about a man who has been returning, returning and returning his entire life. <laughs> mm-hmm. You use uh, the term in your book, mental time traveler. And that's given it's a concept that's helped you kind of have a framework for reaching out and and helping people. Can you talk more about that? Yes. uh, The term itself comes from a a psychologist named Endel Tolving. It basically means this, that when we have unresolved emotional trauma from the past, unrepaired wounds, that almost every day in some way we are triggered and our feelings are responding not so much to the present moment, but we are really responding out of the wounds and the lies and the false beliefs that have occurred in our distant past. And and we become these mental time travelers. There was a writer named Henry Nouwen who once said, the suffering we most frequently encounter in ministry is a suffering of memories. And that was true of me. Um, I was trying to keep all that at bay but there was still a little boy and a child and an adolescent and a teenager inside of me with a lot of pain and brokenness. And all of a sudden, I would find myself back there. And here's an important point. I wasn't remembering what was happening. I was re-feeling mm-hmm. what was happening. And I came to the point that I needed Jesus to go back into that past with me so that I could be free, which I have discovered he loves to do for people. Well, when you're, I'm trying to picture you in the back seat of your grandfather's car Hello? on a fall night when you are uh, nervous and panicky and he's gone and your body, um, your body is registering certain levels of trauma. Is that fair? Absolutely. Unquestionably. Yeah. So, uh, and you don't even know that your body's registering the trauma, but it is. And you wouldn't even know how to explain it. That's right. And uh, neurobiologists today tell us that, um, and I think this is an important point, that 
trauma and traumatic memories are not stored as concepts in our life. They are actually stored in the right brain and in our body. And often we're responding to them without even consciously knowing what it is that we've carried into the future from our unrepaired past. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and here's the piece that I think gives both understanding and hope. I think there are a lot of Christians that would love to believe that the moment they accept Christ, everything of their past is now redeemed and, and they can live with total freedom. But that's just not true. There are a lot of these unresolved uh, moments of trauma that create a lot of emotional dissonance inside of us. But and, and if I may also, and I know I was this kind of leader, somebody comes and talks about these issues, and my encouragement was pray more, read the Bible more, go to church more, you'll be fine. But that's not true. While praying, reading the Bible, and going to church is important, what we really need is an emotion-laden experience with Christ in our past that can set us free. And And that's what I began to experience and as I shared it with other broken people, it became a highway for an entirely new kind of ministry. Mm-hmm. Terry, let me take a little break. Terry Wardle is my guest. His book is Some Kind of Crazy, an unforgettable story of profound brokenness and breathtaking grace. We'll be back with Terry in 90 seconds. Terry Wardle is my guest. He's written a book called Some Kind of Crazy, an unforgettable story of profound brokenness and breathtaking grace. In his book, he talks about the six core longings of every human heart. And if you don't have those, you can drift back into insecurity. And those six longings are love, security, understanding, purpose, significance, and belonging. I think that's a pretty comprehensive list, Terry. It is, and I believe with all of my heart that it's God that has placed these longings in our heart and that he wants these longings to be fulfilled, but they are to be fulfilled in him. And what happens, I believe, is that when we've experienced brokenness, when we are separated from God, that we begin to turn these longings in all kinds of directions that in the end give us a lot of pain and a lot of trouble. How many people have sought for significance through education, through their job, through relationships, through their appearance? How many have sought to belong by modifying their behavior, modifying uh, the way they approach life? And in the end, it's empty. And here God is wanting to fulfill it. It's Jesus in John 1 who says, what is it that you want? And he knows that deep in our hearts, we want to belong. We want to be loved. We want to be safe. And Jesus wants us to know that we can find all of that and more in him but when we begin to turn to the world to, to fulfill these longings, it can lead to significant brokenness. And many times we go there because of the brokenness of our existing past. And not to mention there's a, a, a lot of chronic anxiety in the world today. And I think if these things are not in place, the chronic anxiety will be there. Oh, absolutely. Because, again, these longings have feelings behind them. There is a real angst to them when you don't uh, have them met. And God is determined. He wants so much for us to find fulfillment in him. In Ezekiel chapter, I think it's 14, he talks about the people of Israel. And he said, look, you've raised up idols in your heart and your heart should belong only to me. 
And an idol isn't a little statue. An idol is anything we're turning to other than God to fulfill the deepest longings of our lives. And I know in my life, uh, based on the amount of brokenness I experienced early on, I began to turn to a lot of things to try to fulfill the longings and kill the pain. And in the end, they contributed to my own brokenness instead of fulfilling me. Uh, Augustine uh, once said, uh, keep seeking what you're seeking. Just stop seeking it where you're seeking. Mm. And so we want people to seek love, seek belonging, seek security, seek purpose, understanding, and significance. But seek it in God because he has it in abundance for us. But if we go other places and put our identity in things we can lose, it can really lead to despair in our lives. Uh, Interesting. Terry, Now I know you've talked about your crazy family, and you loved your family, and there was ways Absolutely. there were ways that your family wounded you, obviously, and you talk about this in your book. But when you look back now, what were some lessons you learned? What what were some things that um, you can share with us about what you learned? Well, uh, in terms of my family, one of the things I've learned is this: that uh, their story is a mixed story. There's a story of brokenness, and there's also a story of grace. There are things that they did that were very destructive, but also they could be extremely loving. But what I learned most of all was about myself, that when you're broken, when I was broken, when I was bruised, when I was battered by things that happened as a child, it changed my perspective on the people around us. It's as if I was in a deep ditch and I couldn't see the full story of people's lives. And so I began to want to distance from them rather than be able to say there are both positive and negative stories that surround my story. And, and you know, one of the things that I've learned about story is that God wants to meet us in our entire story, and that I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't for my entire story. I wouldn't be able to contribute the way I do today if it weren't for my entire story. And that's where God meets us. Um, I know this. One of the things that I've learned that I think is very, very important is that the scripture in Isaiah 42 that says, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not put out, is truly a metaphor of the tenderness of God's heart toward the broken. I am convinced that the flow of the kingdom of God works best for the broken and battered who get into that flow and suddenly find the blessings of God. I think it's harder for the rule keeper and the scorekeeper and those that are trying to measure up It's hard to understand the flow of grace, but when you've been beat up and spent some time in a psychiatric hospital and have been pulled through a knothole backwards, you find that the kingdom of God flows well for you when you're willing to throw yourself into that healing stream. That's beautiful. That's going to encourage a lot of people that are going to, that are in feeling they're in that place right now. So thank you for for that. Um, When I think of some of the emotional wounds that uh, people have as they go into church, uh, is church, are they doing a good job of addressing these, or is that something that should be addressed by a counselor outside of the church? Well, I think that many people go to counselors, and some of them need to go a counselor because they have some diagnosable issues. But unfortunately, I think many people go to counselors because the church doesn't really know how to come around the broken and position them to experience Christ. I remember once Uh, hearing Larry Crabb comment that uh, a lot of people pay a counselor to do what people in the church could do for them, which is connect deeply and love them and position them for healing encounters with Jesus. 
And I, I do believe that that's part of what we need to equip the church to do. I know I was a pastor for years, about 20 years. And I look back and say many times I was preaching past where people were really living. I was giving them new principles, but I wasn't really helping them connect at the level of their wound and their loss and their false beliefs. And that I think that's something the church can do. And by the way, that's one of the things that I spend my time doing now is equipping people to do that very thing. Um, I love Larry Crabb, by the way, and we could go down a whole nother road uh, with Larry Crabb, but um, I just find him to be just one of the greatest human beings alive. He's amazing. Um, But I want to ask you about how you found your, 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 your space to forgive your family and to, and just to extend forgiveness. Um, how you just sort of extended that to your family, the forgiveness. You know, there was a, soon after I was returning from the psychiatric hospital and I had been memorizing scripture and trying to get my feet on the ground, I was still struggling a lot. And one night sitting by a fire uh, up in the high mountains of California and Sierra Nevada's, I turned to the scripture of Jesus in Gethsemane, and boy, did it instruct me. First, I saw Jesus really pouring out his emotion before God with even physical manifestation. I also realized he wanted friends around him to support him. And then I I really had this thought when, when he was at his worst, God didn't give him a scripture. God gave him an experience of his presence. And this is what I suddenly noticed, that after Jesus grieved the loss and encountered God, it was the next day when he says to the Father, forgive. And I think as a good, quote, good Christian, I was trying to forgive, but I'd never grieved the loss. I've never touched the wound. And when I began to grieve the loss and touch the wound, I found it much easier to have a new perspective on what I had gone through and the ability to forgive. And it wasn't just because I knew that God had forgiven me of much, but I also knew that the burden of loss was now being held by the Father, which positioned me to offer a forgiveness that I was really not able to offer. I, I, I go so far to say at times that I think Christians forgive too quickly. Now, I don't mean by that they should act unforgivingly, but I mean forgiveness works best once we've really touched the loss and met Jesus and we have a restoration. And I think that's what the Psalms show us, so many Psalms of lament. We see the psalmist crying out, telling what happened, and then the end of the psalm lends itself to a doxology mm-hmm. where, the psalmist, where the psalmist says something to the effect, God, I've told you how I feel, but you deal with the person as you want. I'm so glad that you have touched my heart. I release this into your hands. Yeah. And then, Terry, as, as an author, you've written this book, Some Kind of Crazy. Um, what do you hope uh, readers are going to take away from it? I really have one outcome goal, and that is that in reading the story of how God met me in the midst of my own brokenness, in the midst of my own story, that people would allow the Lord to meet them in their story. Everyone has a story. And often we try to put away the bad parts of our story and hold on with a death grip to the good parts. God wants to meet our entire story. So I hope as they're reading my story, they begin to see it connect and intersect with their own story, and that in the end— they will have an encounter with Christ that will truly heal and set them free. I love it. So we only have about 90 seconds left, and I just I want to go back to your grandfather because I found him to be such an interesting character in your book. And maybe you would quickly tell the story of your grandfather blowing up someone's house. 
Well, yeah, uh, we had a neighbor. He was called Old Man Barnes. When the Slapjar mine went on strike, uh, Old Man Barnes needed money, and he he crossed the picket line. And uh, it infuriated my grandfather, and he was rolling back and forth across the floor, yelling and screaming in his wife beater T-shirt. And finally, he got his winter clothes on, went back to the mine, went to the tool shed, got some dynamite, walked down the railroad tracks up to Old Man Barnes' house, lit the dynamite, threw it under the porch, and then took off. And it actually blew off the front part of the house, injured Mrs. Barnes and Old Man Barnes. And my grandfather thought he was being being pretty clever. The problem was kind of like breadcrumbs from Hansel and Gretel. uh, His footprints led the police right back to the house. Mm -hmm. And he, of course, protested that it wasn't him, but it was him. And he went to trial, but Everyone believed there was money exchanged hands and he was let off the hook, which happened more than once for my grandfather. But that was the kind of environment that was part of this family and this geography that I grew up with, which now I'm so glad to know I've been grafted in to a new family of grace. Yeah. And the book is a a fascinating read. Terry Wardle has been my guest, Some Kind of Crazy, an unforgettable story of profound brokenness and breathtaking grace. Terry, I'd love to have you back. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, anytime. It's been a joy, and may God bless you, and thank you for all that you're doing. Thanks so much. We'll take a short break. Come back. Start with Hour 2 with David Wheaton. Can't wait. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.